Hello and welcome to Eyewitness Beauty, the podcast where we talk about the biggest stories in the beauty industry each week. I'm Nick Axelrod Welk, but today I am not joined by Diamond Creek Bomb. Diamond Creek Bomb is on a research expedition in Europe. I am instead joined by a person that I've been trying to get on the podcast for months. She is probably one of the only beauty analysts, onlookers, commentators whose opinion and whose comments I take to heart. Her name is Dolma Alton, and she is a actually a Brown graduate, so we have that in common. She has amassed like over 60,000 followers on TikTok for quite incisive and intelligent and sometimes like long form content, which I feel like 60K on TikTok doing business analysis is like quite a feat. It's not like you're doing ASMR with like marshmallows and feet or something. Delma, (laughs) welcome to Eyewitness Beauty. I want to hear, before I even try to attempt to give more of your background, I want to hear it straight from you. First of all, welcome to Eyewitness Beauty. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Also, I love your podcast, so it's fun to be here. Thank you. So my journey basically started when I interned at an agency called Red Antler when I was in undergrad, actually, when I was at Brown right before I graduated. And So Red Antler, side note, they did Everlane? All birds. They did All Birds. They did Casper. They did like Birchbox, Rent the Runway, like all the OGs. Yeah. Like the OG D2C companies, this company mm-hmm. would basically like do the entire brand seemingly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now they're very expensive. Anyway, continue. Yeah, this is probably true. So I interned there and I fell in love with D2C. I just, I, I love the intersection of building brands and being adjacent to Silicon Valley. And I liked that a lot. And I graduated, I worked at Google in AdWords. And then after that, I did marketing at different B2B SaaS startups in the Bay Area, but I always loved consumer brands. So in 2017, I started sort of a a clean fragrance retailer online called Potion. I bootstrapped that for a couple of years. That was my crash course in running uh, a beauty business, I like to say. Did you have co-founders or was that your thing alone? Yeah, I had a sort of a partner who helped me get it off the ground, who was sort of like an influencer or a micro influencer. So she was really instrumental in bringing brands on board. But otherwise, it was sort of a solo operation. And then while I was doing that, while I was running Potion, I moved from the Bay Area to LA, didn't know anyone in LA, wanted to network with other women who were in beauty and D2C, started a community, and that became Make Lane, which is the business I run. I call it my day job because now I'm an accidental TikTok creator. And that consists (laughs) of a community of D2C founders and then workshops and courses that we've organized for those women. So it's for women who want to get into like start their own brands to work at D2C brands. They have all started D2C brands. So across, you know, beauty and fashion, apparel, food, and beverage, and they're at various stages. Very cool. So tell me about TikTok. Tell me how someone like you creates a TikTok and finds you had some pretty viral success, like in the 2 million, 3 million, you know, views mark. So how did it start? So I just wanted to create content on TikTok so I could learn the platform. This was back in September of last year. I just wanted to sort of get the hang of this TikTok thing. And I decided I was going to post at least once a day for a hundred days in a row. And at first I was- Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. That (laughs) that is so ambitious. A hundred days in a row Mm -hmm. every day. It was a hundred days in a row. Sometimes I was doing multiple times a day. And the idea behind that was I- like to do these challenges kind of for masochistic reasons. And I had done that with YouTube before. 
but I really just felt like, okay, I want to see if I can build some sort of a, an audience um, on some platform. And I don't think it's going to be anywhere other than TikTok right now, because TikTok is where you can really go viral. You can sort of still arbitrage that opportunity on TikTok. And I don't know what I'm going to talk about, but let's just try it out. And then I knew that if I didn't give myself some sort of a, a challenge, I would fall off the wagon because by video five, I'd be like, why am I not Emma Chamberlain yet? Why am I not viral yet? Right. How dare everyone? So I did that. And then by week three, I posted about the Kardashians businesses and that tends to do well on TikTok. So I went viral and it was off to the races. And then you're like, your drive was satiated and you're like, okay, I can do this now. I think it was, I wanted to talk about, I wanted to nerd out about business analysis and I didn't know if there was an audience for that on TikTok. In fact, I assumed there wouldn't be, but since I had already committed to this challenge, I thought, well, why not just use these hundred days to post about what I want to post about? And lo and behold, people actually really like hearing about business. Even people who, you know, are not entrepreneurs or not in the industry. I have a mix of industry people and just regular consumers following me. And, and I think we're in this sort of like zeitgeist of people want the business tea. So. Yeah, it's funny. I think in the same way that like when Rachel Zoe became famous, there was like the curtain was kind of drawn back and like the job of a stylist and the life of a stylist was almost as interesting as like the person that they were styling. It feels to me similar that like a consumer is now interested in like the B2B, well, what was typically or classically like B2B information yeah. about like CEOs and IPOs and all that. Like, it's just like the curtain has kind of been drawn back and now beauty consumers are also interested in how the sausage gets made more than ever. Totally. And I think entrepreneurs and sort of business leaders are the new celebrities. I mean, we see them kind of acting as influencers and people want that content. So, okay. I'm very excited to have you here. I feel like we need to get right into top stories. Let's do it. Okay. So I feel like the biggest story of the week was Glossier's Emily Weiss, who was the founder and the CEO since its inception, step down this week. She wrote a blog post on the company blog. She wrote an Instagram post. She did a photo session with Kyle Leahy, who is stepping up uh, to be the new CEO. And it's funny on LinkedIn, we're LinkedIn friends. And it was like, Emily's been promoted to like executive chairman or something. And I was like, that's funny. But yeah, <laughs> so she's now working in more of an advisory capacity. She's also having a baby. There's all these hot takes, including like the silly ones from Business of Fashion that I can't take seriously. But who do you like? What have you read and what has rung true to you about that story? I think generally the commentary I'm seeing is, OK, Emily has birthed this incredible creative vision and she's run this company for years. And often in the lifetime of a large company that surpasses the billion dollar valuation mark, there is somebody with a lot of executive, especially corporate experience that steps in to kind of steer that organization to the next chapter of its growth. I think all those sort of like PR platitudes are actually kind of apt here. And it makes sense, right? Especially because I think Emily's strength is, I mean, you know better than I because you actually know her, but from the outside looking in, it seems like she is truly such a creative visionary. And I think it can be really difficult from everything I've seen from friends I've talked to, to kind of maintain that creative visionary role while still being the CEO, right? There's a lot of management and other stuff involved in that. And so separating those out might help her kind of lean into her zone of genius more while somebody sort of steers that ship. I agree. I think that anyone who's sort of like trying to connect dots between like 
quote unquote, what went wrong, and it's some sort of like a big heroic journey or something is getting it a little wrong. I think you're dead on that people who start companies who have an idea, just because you have a great idea and a generation defining idea, if you will, doesn't necessarily mean that you also either know how to manage an employee base and run a company or want to do that. And I think Mm -hmm. the fact that Emily's done it for the number of years that she's done it, she is someone who will read every single book on a topic if she sets her mind to it and really will try to wrap her head around it. But there's no courses, certainly at Brown or NYU or any of the schools that we know about that teaches you how to run a company it's a lot of learning on the job. And I think founders in general are oftentimes held to some sort of the same standard as like the CEO of General Electric or something. And you're lucky if you're a founder and you've even been able to have an executive coach because that's money that the investors know is going to just like a therapist for you. You know what I mean? Totally. Yeah. And I think what you're referencing, which is more broadly speaking, kind of just the challenges of running a really large startup that's been around for years that is $1.8 billion. I mean, a lot of that is sort of underpinning the transitions we're seeing in the company, I think. Whereas I think a lot of the commentary, a lot of the sort of like salacious kind of almost like tabloidy news gossip tends to focus on here's what Glossier did specifically wrong. And I think with any company, there are things people could have done better in hindsight. Honestly, it's just hard to do what they tried to do, especially after raising this much venture capital. I think it's just an incredibly difficult proposition. And I don't know how anybody could sort of navigate that for as long as Emily did completely smoothly. I think it's impossible to do that. I agree. I think the ability of someone to have the, I mean, the amount of energy (laughs) expenditure because she really was a very active, as far as I know, like a very incredibly active CEO until the announcement came. It was very much her and her vision leading the company. And I think that's also exhausting. I mean, the, like I've done it a few times for much shorter stints and it is soul crushing and mind twisting. And when you've raised that much money, the amount of pressure and responsibility you feel and people you're listening to and having to sort of negotiate between becomes so intense. I think that it makes sense. And I think to your point too, now is the time that they, they need to get serious. Like it's clear that whether it's the bigger bubble or a certain bubble has kind of burst that like, there just isn't this up, 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 up idea that they're like, okay, how are we going to give everyone their money back to put it like crudely? Like what's our plan? And, you know, someone who has experience in big corporate structures with negotiating those types of things is going to have the literal practical experience of how to do that. I think it's honestly quite mature. I do have to say the business of fashion coverage of Glossier, I have never been compelled to roll my eyes so much because It's like you're a reporter. You've never started a business. Like your analysis of like, here's what Glossier needs to do to like regain. It's like, how do you know? Like your analysis is smart and coming not from a place of judgment or a place of like, I know better. And I just feel like a lot of the articles are either coming from this sort of misogynist place of focusing on this mean girl culture and it's all hearsay, none of it's fact, or, or this like... Here's what Glossy needs to do to like get back in the game. 
Yeah. I mean, that's something I run up against a lot when I'm creating content too, which is to what extent can I make conjectures? To what extent is my analysis grounded in reality versus I'm just sort of seeing the optics and I'm making snap judgments based on that? I think it is really difficult. And I agree that different publications do a better job of it than others. There was this Business Insider article that was just such garbage, frankly. And it was- Which I feel like was, luckily like didn't get any traction because people realized it was garbage. Yeah, I think people realized this is just completely gratuitous. But I, yeah, I think it's so hard. And I like, one thing that I- I've been seeing is when different beauty brands, for example, go out of business or go into bankruptcy or fold and nobody really sees it coming sometimes. Sometimes people do. Sometimes people are like, okay, that was kind of, you know, in the works. But I think, you know, with Becca Cosmetics, for example, or Bite Beauty, people are, it's hard to predict what will happen because the optics don't always align with what's actually happening behind the scenes. And so we're all just doing a lot of elaborate guesswork and shouting about that on the internet. It's true. And I think too, the other thing, and we can sort of put a pin in the Glossier piece, but the other thing with Glossier is it's a private company. Not a single piece of sales data, unless they've released it, is actually real. And I remember when the first big business of fashion headline came out, they would like quote these companies, like according to like media source. And then I would like Google what, like, you know, sales are declining 50% 50% over la- like from last year. And I would like Google what media source was. And then I was like, okay, so media source is a startup. Okay. So, so like media source itself raised capital and then they were acquired by Bloomberg and like what they do, they have a proprietary algorithm that takes like public credit card data and extrapolates from like 1% of like credit card data. Like it's just like, it's not real. It, it might give you a sense of something, but private companies, you have no idea. So like the idea that Glossier is in or out of fashion or in a terrible financial situation or not, it's all guesswork that anyone's doing. Yeah. You know, one thing I've learned from posting on TikTok is because the algorithm kind of shows you not necessarily to your followers, but just sort of like people that thinks will be interested, you get a lot of interesting commentary just from random people that have some sort of opinion about it, right? And so I tend to get interesting sort of qualitative data that's obviously like a very limited sample size and it's very sort of arbitrarily chosen, but that can be an interesting way both to kind of give you some sense of kind of what the feeling is about a particular topic or cause or idea or person or brand. But also it's very limited because people on TikTok, I think, tend to be more opinionated. And also it's selective, right? Because the opinionated people are going to be commenting. So I think that can also be imperfect. So my sort of quote unquote line of work now on TikTok has just involved trying to triangulate all these very limited data sources and trying to make some sort of conclusion out of them. But it's inherently limited. So have you had any commenters who've left any pieces of information or written to you that have helped move any of the stories forward that you've reported on? All the time, on like a weekly basis. Sometimes I'll mention a brand or I'll mention a person and then people will pile on in the comments either really positively or negatively. And that will tell me that there's a story there. So I'll start to dig into it. For example, Rare Beauty. I mean, I didn't know a lot about Rare Beauty, but the positive sentiment around rare beauty like how much people love that brand they ride or die for that brand i heard that it was the number one brand in sephora that's amazing but i wouldn't be surprised i mean that's amazing because fenty is also in sephora and people love fenty but i will say that in my comments about these different brands i cover the sentiment is mostly positive about fenty but it's almost unanimously positive about rare beauty so those are the kinds of things where i 
realize, oh, this is a beloved brand that I need to talk about more, or this is something that I thought was popular and people are saying, actually, no, that's not a thing anymore. Have you done the story of like why, from a place of research and analysis, like why Rare Beauty has succeeded? Why like at the same time, like Rem Beauty, Ariana Grande's brand has seemingly not succeeded to the same you know, extent? Totally. Yeah. I've talked about this extensively and it's always, <laughs> it's always kind of walking into the lion's den when you talk about celebrities, because there are some real stands out there and they yeah. will not permit any kind of slander, <laughs> what they perceive as slander, which on my part is never really slander. So yeah, I, I think when it comes to rare beauty, especially versus REM beauty, rare beauty has, I think it's one of those quote unquote celebrity brands that actually can stand on its own. People really love the products. I actually really love the blushes. It's a solid brand. They have that whole mental health kind of initiative that I think people feel strongly about too. People just love Selena Gomez. So I don't think that hurts at all. And they have a really solid team. They've pulled together a really strong team. And so I think they just kind of check off a lot of the boxes of what you really need to make a celebrity brand actually work that doesn't depend on the celebrity name, but is just amplified by it. Whereas yeah. R.E.M beauty i think it kind of is more what i would go so far as to say is kind of a merch brand where you're kind of just buying into the image and the looks of that particular celebrity and if their name wasn't attached to it it's not that special okay i just thought of something you know what i think also a difference is rem beauty was incubated by forma brands which owns morphe and they did morphe 2 which was like the one with the d'amelios and rare beauty in terms of the company was privately incubated, meaning yeah. not with one of these quote unquote brand incubators, which I think it shows through in the integrity and the authenticity that you see at every touch point. And that's what I've always said with every brand that I've created. I'm like, let's not go to one of these agencies or these incubators to like hand you a brand because it's just never going to feel you lose the nuance and like the texture that makes a brand sticky when you go to one of these people who are just like in the business of producing brands. I agree with that. I actually think that's a really astute observation. That's what I've noticed as well as a lot of these incubators. I mean, they're kind of spinning up what they think will hit, but it's different like in than a test somebody. Group, yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think that kind of formulaic approach, it just doesn't work. There's an X factor, especially in the beauty business that just you can't capture with that kind of a process. And what I like to say is you really need people who are like, thinking about exclusively that brand when they're like taking a shower in the morning. I'm shaking my head because you're talking my language. Like this is, I think, really the only way to create something that will work and that's meaningful is if you have people who are just thinking about that. And again, to echo what you just said, not just like taking data from a poll and saying, okay, people want eyeshadow from Ariana Grande and she was known for white eyeshadow. Here's a white eyeshadow. That's just not, it's never going to feel real. And you can yeah. also tell when the artist is into it and has been involved. My sense is Selena Gomez either was incredibly involved or has surrounded herself with people who are quite smart and quite savvy in this and saw it as a Fenty opportunity, like a, to build a full sort of collection and a brand versus to your point, like a merch kind of like an extension of their music brand or something. Yeah. And I think there are, I mean, I can't think of many. I know there are a lot of incubators out there, but I think unless you're working with Kendo, right, who incubated Fenty Beauty and they're putting all their resources behind that, which they only would deploy that 
sort of extent of resources. I think if you are somebody with the star power of Rihanna, then you're better off kind of like pulling together a team from scratch, a really, really solid team. And I think that's what Rare Beauty has been able to do. And, you know, it's crazy, but I, I've talked about a lot of celebrity and influencer brands. The one brand where so many people say, I love her, but I'm, I refuse to buy her products. They look terrible is REM beauty. So many people love Ariana and also say the product's don't look very good. That is such an interesting thing. Like we need, yeah. I hope that someone at Former Brands is listening to this, not because we're talking shit, but because that's the crux of the issue is that yeah. like somehow they haven't been able to convert her audience into customers. Exactly. I think it's about like, they're probably banking on, she has a huge fan base. So at the very least, they're going to buy and we're going to try to get mass adoption beyond that. But if even that fan base is not converting and then the ones who do, are they actually coming back for repeat purchases? Because you and I both know that's sort of like the real foundation of growth in a beauty brand. I don't want to be too hard on Formi. I know what they're trying to do is just difficult, especially in such a saturated market. But I think it's more of a testament to the fact that people are just getting kind of sick of celebrity brands, frankly, and they can see right through it and they want something real. What do you think comes after celebrity beauty brands in makeup? I think that there are different sort of dermatologists and kind of like skin influencers and estheticians who, I mean, we've already seen that, right? A ton of them have brands, a ton of them have had brands, even like more establishments like Dennis Gross, et cetera. But I think that we're going to see this sort of like pendulum swing away from all these celebrities who probably, frankly, know nothing about beauty, can't even pronounce niacinamide, back to people who at least have built more of a platform talking about these things in an authoritative way. The name that comes to mind is Charlotte Palomino. I think people love her skincare brand. She has do skin, right? D-I-E-U-X. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's something I think we're going to see more of. And then otherwise, one thing I would like to see more of that I think is promising is when celebrities just join as quote unquote creative director or, you know, whatever kind of silly title they yep. come up with a startup that's already gotten off the ground. You think we're going to see less of that? No, no. I think we might see more of that because these celebrities and their management teams are realizing, okay, we want to get this person into beauty and we want them to have equity in these brands, but people are starting to be able to discern kind of these cash grab brands. So why don't we just reach out to a series B brand that we really like and ask if we can come in as a partner? Is it possible that you're referring to Kim Kardashian being appointed as the quote, chief taste consultant for Beyond Meat, one of the fake meat companies? I I mean, that's definitely in that category. I don't know what the terms of that deal are. I think when you're an earlier stage versus public company, it's easier to give away equity. But yeah, that is an interesting and I think kind of jarring partnership and doesn't make Based on my comments, at least, it doesn't make sense to a lot of people because I made a video about this a few days ago. But it also seems like kind of a Hail Mary from the part of Beyond Me. It's funny. And I also think that consumers are smart enough to feel that like Jennifer Aniston as the creative director of Vital Proteins does not mean that she's and we joke about this on the podcast before, but like she's not in the like leading team meetings with art directors and like deciding what email layouts should be going on. Like it's basically just an attempt at cleverly disguising a celebrity endorsement or like a licensing deal. But I feel like you have done it in a smart way. The people I will say who I've actually, I'll see the Kardashian posts or like the big posts. I'm like, holy shit, that's kind of smart. Function of beauty. Who do they have? 
they had Khloe Kardashian a while ago and I think they even had Kim. It's like with their like pink shampoos. That to me like helped function of beauty really stand out from the crowd. And I also think hymns and hers uh, with JLo and A-Rod and Miley Cyrus. The fact that they're able to get these humongous, like Jennifer Lopez to talk about her thinning hair is like, to me, just a feat in and of itself. Like imagine approaching Jennifer Lopez's team to be like, we have an idea. I mean, because... I guess it's just money talks, maybe. You think Jennifer Lopez has enough of it? Well, I also think JLo and A-Rod are so active in like the tech scene and in Silicon Valley, yeah. and they're such active investors that they probably are kind of bringing whatever sort of like networks they have into the equation as well. And I think they're just really prolific and generally savvy, but that particular partnership. I mean, there are certain kind of endorsements or partnerships where I think we all know there's no sort of like charade. We all know it's just an endorsement deal, but it still is a notable enough name that I think it kind of piques people's interest. And then there are some that are thinly veiled endorsement deals that are trying to present as co-founder relationships. And those are a little iffy. What was your take on The Outset, which is Scarlett Johansson's skincare brand? That's one of those brands where, to me, none of it really makes sense. I can see how if you really, really squint and if you're taking a really superficial sort of framework and thinking, well, Scarlett Johansson is beautiful. Why don't we create a beauty brand around her? I suppose that makes sense. But when you really sort of interrogate the actual logic behind it. She doesn't have an online following. She doesn't engage on social media. That's one of the big draws of even partnering with any kind of celebrity or influencer. She doesn't seem really interested in beauty. She doesn't seem even properly media trained because if you listen to interviews where she talks about her brand, she seems pretty disengaged and her sort of like whole reasoning seems to be, well, I've promoted a lot of other beauty brands and I wanted to start promoting my own. And it's like, oh, okay, how how, maybe it's in a weird way refreshing that you're just being upfront about it. But I think for a lot of reasons. And also they're trying to be clean beauty that is sort of like a pared down routine. So many brands do that. So I don't think it's really my thing. I'm in these rooms and meetings all day in this world. And the thing that maybe it's because I have a kid that I've started to think more about, but I just never want to create a redundancy. If something exists, a simple pared down French pharmacy inspired skincare regimen, then create something else. Annie, if she were here, would say we don't need any more anything. And I agree, but I also think that to sort of like soften that stance, I would say figure out what makes you unique, what makes your point of view unique, and what's something that really doesn't exist if you really spend time looking at the market, and then just make that one thing. Not everything needs to be Fenty Beauty's 40-plus shades of foundation. Like It doesn't need to be that big. It can be small sometimes, and you can grow from a small place or from a cult product. I think a lot of times... These people, even like Garance Doré, who just launched like another French pharmacy inspired <laughs> minimalist skincare collection. I'm like, God bless, but it exists. Yeah. It's like literally the outset, which is this, which is something else, which is something else. I think they're not being disruptive in terms of pricing. They're not being disruptive in terms of ingredients. They're not being disruptive in terms of communication. We joked that the outset was like word soup. Like for a while, (laughs) all the makeup brands were like milky, jelly, bouncy, whatever, like all the Glossier words. And then now in Clean Beauty, it's like clinical, clean, conscious, responsible. And it's just like you pick the words out of a hat and then you kind of create the brand around that. And I think that we'll see those things not working. 
the other thing with D2C, which is I'm now kind of jumping around, but I think with a lot of D2C brands, the innovation, you know, in D2C 1.0 was brand, right? Yeah. And vertical integration. Right. And yeah. but brand trumped product in a way. So it was yeah, like it they could get a product that was manufactured in China, but if they sold it directly and they created this Warby Parker or Casper-like friendly brand, then people would be like, oh, great. I can get a Tempur-Pedic mattress at half the price of a Tempur-Pedic mattress in this like friendly brand that comes in a box. Right. And that was yeah. sort of like enough. I think what we're coming kind of maybe back around to, which I think is ultimately better for consumers, is that product is king. And if the product sucks, if the product is not good enough or not better than other things, then like no matter how cute and sans serif your font is, it's not gonna, it's not gonna work. Yeah. And especially as we head into basically an economic downturn, we're going to see more of these sort of like cash grab or mercenary brands, I think be cleared out. They're going to struggle to stand out. And that effect is only going to be amplified. And I do think people sometimes talk about, oh, D2C is getting so hard. Ad costs are rising and it's so competitive and it's harder to raise capital. And it's just really hard now. I actually think this is the sort of like more normal degree of difficulty. And before it was way too easy to kind of like- It was too easy, yeah. Yeah, it was too easy. You could raise a bunch (laughs) of capital, you know, have some sort of like sexy pitch deck, raise capital from Forerunner, and then spend 50% of that on Facebook ads and, you know, have- some sexy pop up in Soho and then you were off to the races. So actually, I think that's such a good point. Like I, in this sort of like depths of my despair in the companies that I've worked on, I remember I would either say to myself or say to my colleagues, honestly, guys, if it were easy, everyone would do it. And so the fact that we're encountering all these like obstacles is just, this is why it's hard because like, if it was something that was like just easy to just whip up and do, and you would encounter no resistance, everyone would do it. I think that what I think I'm kind of learning in this conversation is this is kind of what we have actually been seeing for the last, call it 10 years or like eight or 10 years, where it was a little too easy. Yeah, it really was. There wasn't enough obstacles to like separate the wheat from the chaff or whatever. It was short term easy. And then long term, you had to reckon with the fact that you raised a bunch of venture capital and you had to deliver a return to investors. And most brands have not been able to do that. Side note, I'll mention founder and a brand I really like. Her name is Leah Yu. She's a YouTuber. Have you seen any of her? Yeah. Yeah. So I love her content. And also Crave Beauty. So they have this whole thing where since they've launched years ago, they have a very small handful of SKUs. Sometimes they will like go a really long stretch without launching any new products because their whole philosophy is if we don't think we can actually do something differentiated, why would we just, you know, launch more products for the sake of increasing AOV and increasing, you know, like a cycle. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So they talk about how venture can really sort of make that more difficult because you kind of have to keep churning out new stuff. Well, there's a term in beauty, which I don't know if it's outside of beauty, but it's called like anniversarying. So when you launch a brand, say I launch in November 2020, November 2021, I need to figure out how I'm going to anniversary the launch. And what that essentially means is like the sales that you've experienced in these big pops, like the big sort of spikes in sales, you need to figure out a way to like make that money, make more of that on that day. Because like, if you're not growing, you're dying. So like you need to increase revenue. So say that we launched a lipstick on day one, and then we launched, you know, a boy brow on day 13 on then every like day 13 for every year to come, we need to have something that can actually like spike us beyond where that first thing took us. And that's why you get into that cycle of like, you're like, fuck, we are not going to grow if we're not creating something new. 
See, I didn't know that. And that's fascinating. So Leah, you, I mean, I guess the benefit that she has is she's not venture backed. So she doesn't have to grow like that. Exactly. And she has a platform online, right? So I do think to your point, I think we're increasingly going to see that the founders and the brands that actually are able to get off the ground at all have some sort of unfair advantage. I agree. Okay, here's another piece of information that, I, that we were talking about before that I think is interesting. Violet Gray was acquired by Farfetch. And though this came out a few months ago, I thought it was interesting to hear your perspective because as I explained to you before we started recording, my thought was like the idea of Farfetch was predicated on sort of like making the world of fashion boutiques smaller and interconnected. And beauty doesn't work the same way. And when Farfetch Beauty debuted, it wasn't like they were offering French or German apothecary brands that you couldn't get in the United States. It was Barbara Sturm and Dennis Gross and and all these other people. What's your take on Violet Gray x Farfetch? So I think for Violet Gray, it makes sense because they were operating in a world where it's really hard to scale because you have Amazon on one end and then Sephora on the other. And so... I don't know that they were making a lot of revenue. Again, all hearsay. And then I think at the same time, they had so much brand cachet. They had credibility. They were amazing curators. They're great at that sort of content commerce kind of editorial strategy. Similar to, yeah, storytelling. Similar to Into the Gloss and Glossier, right? And so they have that expertise and they know beauty. And Cassandra Gray, frankly, is one of the more well-connected people, especially connected in Hollywood and also beauty that Farfetch could tap to bring into their org. And then... Farfetch is looking to dominate luxury retail online. And I think they did sort of start as we help connect you to these, you know, interesting boutiques around the world. And, you know, if you dig into sort of what the CEO says about their long-term aspirations, they're trying to become the quote unquote operating system of luxury retail globally. And to do that, they need to incorporate some beauty because beauty is, I think, something like a quarter of the global luxury industry. And so I think for those reasons, it sort of makes sense. And probably it's not super expensive for a company of the scale of Farfetch. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's like they don't need to be innovative in their assortment. They just kind of need to dip their toe in it and just start. And they're going to like get people who are buying clothes to actually add beauty to their cart. Maybe. Yeah, I think they do want to be that one-stop shop. And it's also, you know, a convenient story to tell their shareholders, which is, hey, uh, you know, we've been hit hard by the last few quarters or whatever. Earnings have been down, but we're adding beauty into the mix. And beauty is something that's a little bit more recession-proof potentially. So maybe that's also part of it. I love Cassandra. And I think that what she built with Violet Gray and and again, the whole founder thing of like, it seems all glossy and girl bossy, but you know, <laughs> having been... Can that be the, the new podcast name? <laughs> glossy and girl bossy. No, but having been the girl bossy glossy person, or at least pretending to be, it's not glamorous, you know, especially a brand that is so, I would imagine, intertwined with your own identity. You know, when you're Emily from Glossier or Cassandra from Violet Gray, like it can be brutal. So I am impressed with anyone who can spend that much time building a company like that. The trend of people wanting to find the chinks in the armor, you know, with like Audrey Gelman and and all those sort of fallen girl bosses, I feel is a little unfair just because of how it's not easy. My last story that I want to talk to you about, and I know that you weren't prepared to talk about this one, but there are rumors swirling that L'Oreal is going to acquire Byredo, which is one of our favorite fragrance and now beauty brands. 
Ben Gorham is the founder of the brand. He created a makeup line with Isamea French, who actually just announced she's doing her own makeup line now. But they've done everything from leather goods to hand soap to blankets to jackets at Byredo. And now L'Oreal is going to potentially acquire them. Why would Byredo be attractive to a L'Oreal, do you think? I mean, I think they've been able to build an incredible brand, creating fragrances that are frankly really artistic and genuinely I personally think they're very good and artfully made but also have a sort of more mass appeal because I think with fragrance often what can happen is you have really interesting stuff that the diehard sort of perfume fanatics love but it's just a little too weird for everybody else it's not totally accessible yeah exactly it's not accessible and I think you know Santal and Barito are some of the few brands that have been able to do both and straddle that line. So I think... Do you mean Lalabo? I mean, uh, yeah, Lalabo, Santal. Might as well be Santal. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's fair, right? <laughs> Lalabo. And yeah, I think from that perspective, it makes sense. And I, I don't know the terms of the deal, if they're sort of also bringing on Ben Gorham or if he's going to leave after that. But if they are bringing him on, I think that is also an attractive proposition because he's clearly a creative genius of sorts. Yeah. And I think, too, what he's done that's been very impressive is, well, number one, this is not the first transaction that they've seen. Like, they, I believe, sold a majority stake to Manzanita Capital back in the day. So who knows at this point, like, what the actual agreements are therein. But he's built a luxury house, a luxury beauty house, and it feels timeless and it feels as good as, you know, the Gucci's and the Chanel's of the world, you know, like in terms of the quality of packaging and the sort of like aura and the halo, he's done that. Even the Labo, yes, kind of, but like Byredo feels like it's more global in its appeal. So I feel like that would be a, a smart place for L'Oreal in their luxury fragrance division to stake their mark. They also, I mean, L'Oreal owns the license to Margiela fragrances, which are incredible, I believe, incredibly successful for L'Oreal and within Sephora and beyond. And I think that having a Byredo would also be a smart complement to that sort of like business. That portfolio. I also think I read that fragrance sales are kind of up year over year. I don't remember if that's still true. They but- are. No, and literally every article is about how fine fragrance is booming. Here's my question with that. And actually, you're the perfect person to answer this. So again, I feel like I've said this three times, but I am in meetings all day having these kind of conversations. And a lot of times what people are bringing to the table are these articles that are like based on NPD data or like industry analysis that says, X category is booming or like, you know, lipstick has overtaken nails or whatever it is. It feels like every day there's an article about how fragrance, fine fragrance is booming. Obviously, they're not using current data. They're using last year or if not the year before data that they've now been able to like collect and analyze. I have a hard time believing that I can take data from the past and use it to inform my future decision. You know what I mean? So I'm like, okay, fragrance has been booming, but we can't really tie it to like what's happening now in the economy. And so I would just be concerned about like wagering a guess that like, I don't know. It's like, what do you do with that data? (laughs) Yeah. I do think that people are generally always looking for like the next trend and they're trying to stay ahead of it. And so there's almost an over eagerness to create a trend where they're 
isn't any, or if, even if there's not enough data that you can extrapolate, I think sometimes that can be a temptation. With fragrance, I don't know what the exact case is, but I will also say that the last few years have been such an aberration. So it's really hard to extrapolate what happened in like the e-commerce boom times of the pandemic years while we head into a recession. So it's going to be really unpredictable. If you had a crystal ball, what would you say in beauty categories, subcategories, what do you think will pop? What do you think will do well as we head into a global recession meltdown hellscape? (laughs) I always struggle with this question because people ask me that. They're like, what categories, what brands do you think will do well? And the more I hear like stories of this brand is shutting down and that brand is being, you know, aqua hired or whatever, I just feel like I know nothing and nobody can ever know anything. But I think... um, (laughs) kind of just at a high level, back to what you and I were saying, a lot of those sort of cash grab brands or brands that are duplicates or derivatives, they will likely be cleared out. And the ones that have built really strong sort of like cult communities around them will last. And I think that's always been true, but it's just going to be even more true moving forward. And probably it's going to be harder for new brands to get off the ground increasingly. So I honestly don't know. I think if I could predict that, I would probably go out and raise a fund and then invest in those brands. So I'm thinking too, as I asked the question, like what I do think there's something about fragrance in terms of creating a feeling and a mood. And, you know, if you wear an expensive fragrance, you almost don't need to wear an expensive outfit. You know, if you smell expensive, there's this way that it kind of like helps it all. So I could see where like, if you were going to spend money, you might spend it in a really nice fragrance, like a Baccarat Rouge, where it's like a huge investment, but it just smells like money. It does. Yeah. (laughs) In a good way. I also think that things that people live with and experience on a day-to-day basis will probably do better than the sort of like splurge or like random things. I get a little worried. We talked last week about the new Euphoria makeup artist line where I'm like, in a recession, like are people going to be buying green cream eyeshadow with like little silver balls that you can apply, you know, like, or are you going to be buying candles and really nice body look like I don't know it just feels like a a moment where you might say okay what am I using every day and I want to make sure that stuff is nice I think people have been sort of discussing especially in my comments sort of the lipstick effect which is people like to spend on things like lipstick during recessions because it makes them feel better it's like an affordable luxury but at the same time that doesn't count for inflation that doesn't account for how people are going to be perceiving their own spending power being diluted so I think there are just so many sort of conflicting forces at play that I imagine like yes people will probably want to feel expensive and sort of to make themselves feel better pay for things that make them feel like they're doing self-care, but I don't think that extends to super like premium brands, especially ones that aren't really differentiated. So I think there's a limitation, a hard ceiling to that, especially as far as price point. The other thing I have started to really believe is that if you were going to start a beauty brand today, if you enter in the super, super luxury space, I always think about the fact that like Rolex needs to sell a hell of a lot fewer Rolexes. to make a shitload of money than like Timex has to sell Timex watches or like Swatch. And there will always be the ultra rich who will still want to buy their products. I think that when you have these economic downturns and granted, I've never taken an economics class. So that's my disclaimer. I think it affects everyone in the middle, like the upper middle, the lower middle and everyone in between. And I think that if I were going to create something now, 
I would say you either want to make something that is really, really accessible. Like you see like a Naturium, I bet will go on fire. You know, it's already on fire, but like it'll go even further on fire because it's that clinical, clean, powerful, ingredient-driven skincare that you can afford that's at Target. And then I also think like the Augustinus Baders and the like super, super, super premium end of things will continue to be the ones that are differentiated and that have science behind them will continue to to boom because those people are not really being affected. That's a really good point. Whatever skincare the crypto bros are wearing will certainly be affected, but I don't know what that is. <laughs> yeah, I actually, that makes me think the opportunity probably moving forward will be to kind of take some of these more mastige or prestige brands that are not super, super luxe, like Augustina Spotter or, you know, Barbara Sturm, but kind of more in that prestige mastige category. And then to create more mass versions of that kind of like a notorium. So take that playbook and apply it to different brands that people want to be able to buy, but can no longer afford. So that's probably an opportunity out there for whoever's listening. Oh my God. Okay. How about me and you do this? We basically create a fictional doctor Right. And he's like this Austrian <laughs> doctor who has the Nobel Prize. He's maybe a physicist turned dermatologist. And we create an entire thing and we sell it to Walmart. I think that's our idea. I love it. Okay. So, product of the week, the time has come. While you think of one, I will tell you mine. Mm-hmm. So, Diptyque is the sort of like iconic candle brand that has turned into a fragrance brand that now actually this week launched cleaning products. And I was like, been there, done that. But I was excited to see a few weeks ago that they launched what they're calling an electric wall diffuser, which I'm calling like a fancy Glade plug-in. Oh my gosh. And I'm doing an unboxing. We did an unboxing live on this podcast last week, and I'm going to do it here again. But basically, you buy the apparatus, like the plug-in, and then you can buy refills. Like, So you only have to buy the plug-in piece once, and then you just buy refills for the plug-in. And the refills come in their biggest fragrances. So you can get like Bays. I got Bays. I got Orange Blossom. And they have a rose one. And you plug it in, and it gives you something like 60 or 80 hours of fragrance. But hold on. I'm having trouble opening this. One second. Wow. Okay. So you haven't tried it yet? Have you plugged it in yet? Oh my gosh, it's beautiful. I have not plugged it in yet, but this is my project of the week just because it's fucking cool and I bet I'm going to love it. (laughs) Wow. And it's just like a cool, like I've thought of this idea and to see someone do it, I'm like a fancy Glade plug-in. So the front is kind of like perforated so that the fragrance can escape. And then the back, there's just like a, a plug. And then you somehow take the front off and you add these pods And then you get hours and hours of fragrance. And I'm going to bring it to my new office. If I saw that item lying around and I didn't have any context for what it was, I would never be able to guess. (laughs) You're like, what does this do? It is such a strange object, but it's beautiful. It is a strange object. And I'm just hoping that it perfumes my whole office. So stay tuned. I guess it's my, it's like a half product of the week. It's my innovation of the week, but you can get it on diptyque.com. But let's wait until next week when I've actually plugged it in. So I <laughs> yeah, can tell keep you us more posted. about it. I will. What, okay, what do you have for us? So this is one that everybody else has probably used, but I am late to the game. I was just a speaker at the WWD Beauty CEO Summit and they give you this amazing, it was such a surreal experience. And they give you this amazing gift bag. And one of the items in it was the pharmacy cleansing balm. I don't know exactly what the real name is, but it's this 
green like cleansing balm that smells like fruit. And it's, I love a cleansing balm, but this is my favorite cleansing balm I've ever used because it's just so silky. Is it the clearly clean one? Wait, pharmacy. It's, it's pharmacy clearly clean makeup melt away cleansing balm. Wait, no, it's the green clean. Oh, green clean. Okay. Yeah, green, it's the green clean, clean makeup removing cleansing balm. Okay. And, tell me about oh it. Oh my gosh. I just don't know how they get the texture like that because it's so silky. That's the best way I know how to describe it. And it just cleans really nicely. It's not like super thick and goopy so that it feels like you're just slathering oil on your face. It just kind of is this thin layer over your face. It gets all the makeup off. It smells good, but not too strong. I'm kind of obsessed with it. So that's my product. It has uh, 5,000 reviews on Sephora and 360,000 likes. So oh my gosh. you know that, yeah, it seems like it's kind of an insanely reviewed product. They say it transforms from a sorbet-like balm to a silky oil. Would you say that's true? That is actually incredibly accurate, yeah. Is this like your first step? So it's like you use this to remove your makeup and then you use a cleanser. Is that how it works? I do a double cleanse. So at least I've started doing a double cleanse. So I'll do that. And then I'll go in with like a gel cleanser afterwards. And what's your gel cleanser of choice? I'm rotating through a lot of things, but lately I actually am using this Sephora brand. I think Sephora brand products, especially the skincare, sometimes they're kind of underrated because if you think about like the resources they have and the economies of scale they have, they can replicate a lot of like ordinary or inky list type products. And I've been using one of their like gel cleansers and it's actually pretty good. There, that's a good pro tip. Sounds great. You can buy it on Sephora.com. You can buy it on pharmacy.com. And that's it. That's our show. (laughs) Dolma, it was so wonderful to chat with you. So you're I am Dolma on TikTok. Yes, I am D-U-L-M-A. That's the (laughs) primary place we can find you. And then where can people find out more about Make Lane? Maclean, yeah. Maclean.com. M-A-K-E-L-A-N-E.com. How'd you get that URL? I was on a Google bus in 2015 thinking, I want to leave my job at Google, but what do I want to do? And I had this idea for kind of like a content commerce sort of play. And I was like, this is the name and I'm going to buy the domain now. There you go. Can I have one just separate question? How was working at Google? Do you like slide down a slide into your (laughs) like desk or something? Um, there is a slide and I have slid down the slide, but I think if you're somebody who can thrive in a large organization, Google is probably one of the best that you can be at. They really do take care of you. If you're somebody who is what I like to call unemployable like me, then even (laughs) Google and even the food at Google can't really be uh, satisfying to you, but Google felt like an extension of Brown. It felt like an extension of college to me, um, especially because my team was made up of a bunch of, you know, sort of sprightly, young, fresh college graduates. So, so in that sense, it was fun. Okay. Good to know. I could not get arrested at Google. If I tried, I was like trying to get a job because I was like, I, I just think it would be kind of interesting, but it's like a fortress to get into. <laughs> That's funny. Anyway, thanks again. I am Dolma on TikTok and I'm going to keep on following because I'm obsessed. Thank you. I am so glad to be on here because I actually love this podcast. So it's a fun full circle moment for me. Eyewitness Beauty is produced by Jasmine Molly of Seaplane Armada. Our theme music is by Danny Presant and our cover art was by Simon Abronowitz. You can please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe on Spotify. Please follow us and help us on Patreon, patreon.com slash eyewitnessbeauty. We produce this ourselves. It's a labor of love. So any support is really helpful in making this possible. 
and hi at eyewitnessbeauty.com, nick at eyewitnessbeauty.com, Anna, or Anna. <laughs> it's like she's been gone one week and I already forget. Annie at eyewitnessbeauty.com. And we'll be back next week with a brand new episode. We'll talk to you then. 